Sustainability Talks with AGA. I'm your host, Paul Marshall. This week, we're speaking with Dave Mater. We're doing a uh, retrospective of his career and trying to get some great mentoring ideas from Dave and uh, things that we can all learn from. He's one of our AGA and Government Accountability World uh, kind of VIPs, so very happy to have today up with us, Mr. Dave Mater. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Today I'm happy to have as our guest Mr. Dave Mater. Dave, how are you doing today? Great. It's uh, you know turning out to be a beautiful spring afternoon. Yeah, I have to say the uh, the weather's been pretty darn good during this quarantine, strangely enough. So it's a good thing. <laughs> yeah, actually, it gives you an opportunity to actually admire nature a little bit. That's right. From our windows, I guess, or backyards. Um, so again, thanks for joining us today, and uh, we wanted to have this podcast with you, um, you know, because you've had a, a, a long and storied career in, in the government um, and on the private sector side in the accountability community, and um, we thought we'd love to get some lessons learned from you and some thoughts, and, uh, and that's kind of why we have you on, on, on board today. So why don't we just start off a little bit about, you know, what, what you're currently doing, where you're working, and uh, what you're doing over there. Sure. So currently, I I serve a role as a strategy officer for the civilian sector of Deloitte and primarily focus on non-DOD and non-Intel agencies, uh, working with clients, especially uh, in the last couple of years with the initiatives that were contained in the president's management agenda, uh, some of the agency reorganizations, transformations, and you know, basically looking at how do we how do we help agencies improve the delivery of their services to citizens? Great. And then before that, you were recently at a, was it OMB, correct? Yes, I was at uh, OMB as the OMB controller from June of 2014 until uh, January of 2017, just before the inauguration. Okay, and so we'll get to that because we're going to do a little bit of a retrospective here. Um, so again, we just kind of want to go back in time a little bit here, maybe talk about you know uh, your education, your early career, and kind of how you got to where you are today. So why don't we talk about you know what did you study in school? Did you think this was going to be your career? You know, take us back in time a little bit. Sure. So um, what I studied in school actually was political science and, and economics um, because I. I actually, from the time I was in high school, decided that doing some type of public service was something that I really wanted to do. And and I came to that conclusion basically in sort of watching my father, who was a World War II Army Air Corps veteran, uh, worked for the New Jersey Bell System before the war, came back and continued to work for them, but he was very, very actively engaged in our community, including uh, he ran for our city council a couple of times and was elected. And and he instilled in myself and my siblings the the desire to serve and to give back to the community. And that's what basically drove me to pick, you know, political science, economics. I thought it was a flexible enough set of, of skills that whether I worked at the state or local or federal level, I could um, c- 
continue to sort of carry on the family tradition of, of public service. So you said you studied uh, you know, poli sci. So did you have any accounting or finance kind of uh, classes at all, or? I, I, you know, I, <laughs> I had no accounting classes. I had some finance classes. Um, I had actually my a lot of my closest friends at in college were were actually all accounting majors. But um, I, you know, it was something that. I was interested in, but did not want to spend the vast majority of my undergraduate time doing doing accounting. Understand? Yeah, I was actually poli sci too. So, but but this is your story. But yeah, I understand that. Um, so, tell us about so when you graduated. Uh, you know, what where where did you go to work? And you know, did you actively pursue government versus private sector? What was your first uh, career? Yeah, step? I mean, actually, Paul, like I said, when when I was you know in the second semester of of my senior year, it was, okay, where, you know, where in government, and, and it was broadly government, state, local, or, or the federal government, um, could I find the opportunities that I was looking for? And actually explored some opportunities in the state of New Jersey, of which I was a resident, um, but actually focused more on the federal government. I thought the federal government had a broader set of opportunities in the long run and started my government career with the General Services Administration and spent uh, almost two years with them before I moved over to the Internal Revenue Service. And, uh, you know, I, let's talk a little bit about some early career challenges and or opportunities. Uh, maybe IRS, I know you had some interesting things kind of come up when you started there. So IRS, um, you know, I spent 33 years at the IRS, and I began um, there in New York City, and New York City was one of the larger offices and larger regions within the IRS at the time. So it it gave me the opportunity to move through um, multiple different administrative functions, um, through um, the real property program, through finance. Uh, through HR, and I spent, oh, I guess about 15 years sort of in that New York City environment, not only in Manhattan, but also in a district office over in Brooklyn, and then decided that for me to actually pursue more senior positions at the senior executive level, then it was going to require me to make some moves. So I competed and was selected for the IRS Executive Development Program. That was a six-month full-time program. We would basically travel around the country, getting a broad overview of, of different IRS offices and functions and activities, and then wound up in my first assignment uh, going to um, the IRS Detroit Computing Center, um, spent close to two years up there, uh, and then transferred down to the headquarters office as the deputy for planning and research. And then after a couple of years, moved over to uh, human capital and administrative functions. So I've, IRS gave me the kind of diversity and experiences that I was looking for early in my career and, and you know, stayed at the IRS until I retired in, in 2003. And then in 2003, you know, went into the private sector until returning to OMB in 2014. 
Um, IRS was interesting in that I started out in New York in field offices, and then when I wound up coming to the headquarters, it was in the early 1990s that IRS came under a lot of scrutiny around how the service was treating uh, taxpayers. There were a series of of year-long hearings, which resulted actually in a commission that studied the IRS that basically recommended that the IRS move from its sort of traditional geographic structure to one more focused around uh, common groups of taxpayers. And that's when Charles Rosati uh, became the IRS commissioner in 1997. And I think one of the greatest experiences in my life at the IRS was being part of that team that took that legislation and made basically turned it into reality. And that was, it'll be 21 years this summer since the passage of that legislation. And what's interesting is the design that we put in place back in, you know, 1998, 1999 to this day holds. And it's, you know, it's been successful in improving the performance and how taxpayers interact with the service, whether it's electronic filing or, um, you know, improvements in business processes for small business, for large business, for multinational. So to me, it was, you know, a once in a lifetime experience. So now I don't know if it was part of this particular authority legislation, but I understand that you were there also when um, IRS decided to bring in some private sector folks. Can you talk a little bit about that and why did they decide to do that? Sure. One, one of the, um, in looking at the, the scope of the reorganization, one of the things that, that we realized, and, and, and I credit Charles Rosati for this idea, was, you know, we want to get the best thinking, not only in government um, and in the IRS with the career folks, but let's bring in individuals who have similar experiences in the private sector. And we managed to actually have put in the legislation a provision that that allowed the IRS to bring in 40 outside executives, basically on four-year term, at the vice president's salary. So they were basically, while they were career employees, they were pretty much career employees at will. And we were we were able to attract. Uh, large number of individuals who wanted to serve and who brought experience in private sector accounting, uh, private sector, large IT organizations. And, you know, that program actually continues this day. And it's a real opportunity for folks in the private sector and industry who want to come in and provide some public service, an opportunity to do that. So let me ask, because, you know, you're you're a good example of somebody who's done a little bit of this. So what what do you think, you know, what are things that work really well when you bring private sector execs in? And maybe what are some things that you've seen don't don't work that well? I think what 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 works really well is um, when you identify the individuals that have experience in in a company, in an industry that is close to government and, and I'll, you know, IT is in a large, you know, federated corporation is similar to the kinds of challenges that we face in IT and the government. 
Um, obviously, individuals who work in the tax practice in the private sector have a point of view because they are the customers. So having those different sets of experiences that complement the experiences that we have as career folks, I think that blend is, is um, an opportunity to do even more because you're blending outside experience, outside customer viewpoints with the deep knowledge of folks like myself who are career people and spent, you know, literally decades at the IRS. I think one of the, one of the biggest challenges for individuals coming into the government, and I, you know, I see that with, you know, political appointees who've never worked in the government, you know, and I can say I was a career executive and I was also a Senate confirmed political appointee is when you come in from the private sector, there are, you know, there are similarities between the private sector and government, but there are statutory differences. Um, and I think at times it becomes challenging to explain to people coming in from industry why certain rules and regulations uh, exist in the government. Um, but, you know, my experience, Paul, for the most part is, you know, people, they scratch their head a little bit and say, well, you know, is that really the most efficient way to do it? And I think the response is perhaps not, but the government is different than the private sector. Um, our constituents are our citizens and our taxpayers. And, you know, where a company could decide, I don't want to be in this business line anymore because it's not profitable. We don't have that um, opportunity because the Congress you know, basically, and the administrations basically decide what agencies are going to do and how they're going to do it. Right. So, so let's talk about yourself here. So, you know, you say you, you were the IRS about 33 years. Um, and then it sounds like you actually retired from the IRS and that's when you, you moved into the private world. Yeah, I actually, I spent enough time to actually retire. And I had actually, when I was about a year away from being eligible to retire, you know, I started asking myself, it's like, I can, you know, I can spend another, you know, five or 10 years at the IRS or within the government. But I was always intrigued as to whether I could make a contribution and be successful in the private sector and decided as soon as I was eligible to, to look for opportunities um, in the, in the public sector and the private sector, you know, had opportunities for me to continue to support government clients. And in all of my years, and it's almost 15 years that I've done work in, you know, in consulting, strategy consulting, um, I've never done it for a private sector firm, I, you know, as a client. All of my clients have been either federal agencies state or local agencies, and, and, and in some cases, I did some uh, consulting for a couple of foreign governments. So I, I guess at, at heart, I'm a public servant. It's just a matter of do I do it as an employee or, or do I help them uh, from the outside as a consultant? Sure, and I think you kind of touched on some of this already, but again, you know, what, what would you say are some of the, the main things that, you know, bringing in a private sector person into a government environment you know, what, what can it do to kind of, you know, maybe spark innovation or, or, you know, do some things that if it were just purely government um, folks full time that you, you wouldn't maybe get some of the same perspectives? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the things that um, that I've learned over time is that um, I don't think I would have been as effective when I returned to government as OMB if I had not left for, you know, 10 years to work across a variety of different government clients, like I said, whether they were federal, state, or local, or, or foreign governments. It gave me, a, you know, a completely different set of experiences that I could leverage at OMB. And I think that's that's the advantage, I think, of having a, a, a mix of individuals who come in with private sector experience and career executives, career employees who know actually how to deliver day in and day out against their mission. Absolutely. So, so let's talk a little bit about when you did decide to come back to government and you went to OMB, uh, maybe just a little bit about, you know, why you made that decision and, uh, you know, some of the things that you learned from doing that and some experiences you had. So, uh, on my bucket list uh, in my professional journey, I always wanted to um, to be a Senate confirmed appointee, and I, you know, and I kept looking over the years, you know, for opportunities. Um, the controller position at OMB was available, and you know, it had a broad portfolio of federal financial management because the controller is the head of the office of OFFM federal financial management. And it also had a challenges at the time in, in the 2014 period of uh, implementing further implementing the concept of administrative shared services, which is something that I had actually started when I was in the IRS and did it um, for a number of years. And when I was in consulting, it also had the opportunity uh, presented to implement the Data Act, which um, I found fascinating because it would allow citizens, it allow the Congress, allow other stakeholders greater insight into how the government spends taxpayers' money. So those challenges were of great interest to me. And, and when the opportunity to serve was presented, it was like, yep, I'm going to leave the private sector and, you know, go in and I had two and a half years. It was the last two and a half years of the Obama administration. I wish it had been four. Um, but working working across the departments uh, against, you know, the CFO Act agencies, those 24 organizations, to me was a great learning experience because, you know, all my government experience was, you know, within IRS, which is a large bureau, but, you know, it's one bureau within Treasury. And being able to understand the challenges, whether it's at commerce or justice or DHS or HHS, was um, really rewarding in learning the breadth of our government services and meeting, you know, a, a great number of, of very committed career employees, as well as, you know, I got to work with a first-class group of political appointees. So, you know, if people ask me all the different jobs, Dave, you've had, what's like the greatest job? It was OMB. That was a, that was a uh, terrific two and a half year experience. And, you know, we had some challenges and, and we overcame them. We implemented the data act. Uh, we made, uh, 
progress on reducing the federal footprint in real estate. Um, and a lot of that, you know, is attributable to OMB being a leader, setting a clear set of goals and working collaboratively with the departments. And something I've always wondered too, you know, what is it really like? I mean, you're working with you know, the White House, you're working with all the different agencies, um, you know, but at the same time, you know, a lot of those positions are short term, as you said, two years, four years. I mean, is there just like a real sense of urgency to get things done, a lot of pressure or what would you, how would you characterize the day-to-day rhythm of that kind of a job? You know, it, it is, you know, it is as an appointee, you know, you do have a lifespan, right? It's either, you know, it, it can any anything from four years to, you know, in my case, two and a half years. Um, so there is a sense of urgency, but one of the things that, because I've been in D.C. now for 30 years and, you know, have watched multiple, you know, administrations from, you know, the senior Bush administration when they came to town to two terms of Clinton and two terms of George W. Bush and two terms of Barack Obama and now, you know, almost a full term of President Trump is um, I've seen over that period of time a real commitment, regardless of the party, to improve the performance of the government. I mean, there will always be be huge policy debates around, you know, issues, whether they're economic or social. But there's been a real push in my 30 years now to continue to improve the operation, the performance of the government. And what's been heartening to me is um, a lot of the work that we started in the Obama administration and the president's management agenda was picked up by the Trump administration and taken to that next level. You know, they didn't just say, oh, that was the previous administration. We're going to start all over. They basically picked up the ideas that they thought were important to improve performance and they built on them. And I, you know, and I'm hoping that that now, Paul, becomes a trend when it comes to, these kinds of programs. Yeah, that's good to hear. Um, so last couple of questions for you, a little bit more philosophical mentoring, that kind of thing. But I, I really just want to get, you know, from somebody like yourself, who's, you know, really risen to some great positions in your career, you know, what, what motivated you or were you very goal oriented and saying, you know, I'm going to achieve this this year, I'm going to achieve this in five years, or I'm going to take advantage of these opportunities. How did you navigate your way forward? That's a great question, Paul, because so, so many times in, in my career, people, younger staff have asked me, it's like, well, Dave, what's your like 10-year plan? It's like, I've never had a 10-year plan. I don't think I've ever had even a five-year plan. I, I focused on how can I, in the position that I currently hold, you know, achieve the most to grow, prepare myself for the next set of challenges. And I really, you know, if people said, did you have a roadmap? like, no, it was, you know, achieve excellence in what you're doing. And that recognition actually will give you then opportunities to do additional positions that will help you grow in your career. And I've been, look, I've been really, really blessed throughout my whole career in the government and in the private sector in working with uh, individuals who are very conscious about allowing people 
to grow and to achieve their maximum potential. And I, I say that in, you know, every organization I've worked in, I've been really fortunate to have people that, you know, I, I guess I would characterize my bosses that allowed me those opportunities. And uh, another piece of this. So, you know, as far you've gotten to where you are now, you're, you're at the top of this particular field. So how about, you know, the, the others that come after, you know, the younger folks? I mean, how, how do you kind of bring those folks up behind you and so they can kind of get to that next step? You know, one of one of the real um, pluses of of being in a position where I am now with with the experiences that I have, um, whether it's, you know, was at OMB or or at Deloitte or even now working with with my federal clients is, you know, sharing with them the experiences I had, you know, letting them know things that worked for me that didn't work for me, um, you know, being able to not tell people what to do, but to give them some additional insights based on my own personal experiences in similar situations for them to consider, not to tell them what to do, but just to basically, you know, ask questions. Have you thought about this approach? Have you thought about that approach? Because that's the only way, you know, people are going to progress in their career is by giving them the opportunity to grow, giving them the, the safe space to, you know, sometimes make the wrong decision and to be there to help them and, can, and allow them to continue to progress. Because, you know, we all are going to, like, move on eventually, and it's our responsibility to bring up that next generation of, of federal leaders. Right. Almost sounds like Socratic method. You don't give them the answer. You just uh, ask questions and let them come up with the answers, right? I, it, you know, I think it. I think it is the right way to do it. It took me a while to learn that, though, Paul. <laughs> Earlier on, it would be like, no, I have the right answer. It's like, well, you're not going to learn anything if you always have somebody giving you the right answer. Right. Uh, so along those same lines, you know, have uh, you know. D- What's your opinion on mentors? You know, do you think everybody should have them? Have you always had them? And if so, how did you find them? How, do you, how did you know they were the right one? You know, um, I think mentoring is, is important for um, both for the recipient, but as I mentioned, it's, it's also, I believe, a responsibility of senior leaders to be available to be mentors. And for me personally, um, it it was watching people over time, um, and mentors don't necessarily need to be your boss. They can be your peer. They can be somebody in a completely different part of the organization. But, you know, I, I observe, you know, everybody, how they act, how they lead, how they manage programs, how they lead people. And I've always, over time, just looked at people and it's like, you know, this person X did this really thing and it made me feel really good. That's a, you know, that's a trait that I want to put in my toolkit. That's something that made me feel good, and I think it's something I want to emulate. And I think I just gravitated to people based on observation of, you know, how they had been performing in the organization, how they led. I don't think I ever walked over to somebody and said, will you be my mentor? It just sort of happened over time. 
Right. No, that makes sense. Yeah. It's, I mean, I think sometimes even official mentoring programs, you know, just don't work as well as when people find each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Well, so yeah, thanks again for being here today. I want to ask you one last kind of question and maybe it's relevant to our uh, current COVID crisis right now that we're all unfortunately uh, going through, but you know, um, maybe if you kind of give us a little final words of advice or encouragement and, you know, getting through the crises like this, but, you know, and just, you know, to, to be successful in a government career, to keep at it, to, you know, to keep our motivations up. You know, I, you know, I've seen a lot Paul, and, you know, in 50 years now, um, lots of different challenges that our country's had to face and has overcome. I, I will tell you that I've never seen anything like this where we have, the pandemic at the same time, we have a significant economic crisis um, simultaneously. And I think it's remarkable how quickly the federal government, and, and that's who I focus on now, was able to pivot to this um, emergency situation and, and respond and keep and keep the functions of government going, right? Yeah, you know, some offices are closed, and yes, I can't walk in, but the ability to continue to provide services and support by the career people and their, you know, political colleagues is pretty impressive. And yes, there'll be, you know, there'll be criticisms about how certain programs rolled out, but, you know, I think we need to keep in mind that what we're seeing today, we've never seen before. And we need to acknowledge the contribution that the federal employees, state, local, military, healthcare workers are making each and every day, including, you know, think about, you know, think about if we didn't have um, the delivery people who are out there on the front lines delivering packages and food and things like that. So there are a lot of unsung heroes um, who deserve our appreciation and our admiration. Absolutely. Uh, well, Dave, again, thanks for joining us. And uh, I think we have some great some great thoughts here that uh, we will learn from. And I hope you're doing well and uh, we'll get out of this thing sometime soon, hopefully. All right. Well, thank you for the opportunity, Paul. I really appreciate it. That's our show. Thanks for tuning in. Check us out, agacgfm.org. Plenty of podcasts to choose from, as usual. And as promised, we're going to keep these coming. Hope you all enjoy them. I think we're all learning to do a lot of things virtually these days, so uh, you can add this to your list. So until next time, this is Paul Marshall signing off for Accountability Talks with AGA. AGA.